We are back with episode 13 of the Hubscale podcast. This week, we have Shashank Tiwari, the co-founder and CEO of Uno.ai. I'm so excited to dive into some of the topics we've got today. Shashank, it's great to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show, Elliot. You've got an excellent show going and (laughs) I'm glad I can be part of it. No problem, no problem at all. It's great, great to have you on. Um, and like I said, so many exciting topics today, which we're, which we're going to run through. So I'm, I'm really excited myself. So a pleasure to have you on. And I just, for the listeners who are listening, who maybe don't know yourself or Uno, it'd just be great to have a quick introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, why don't I start with my story? And then we'll segue quickly into uh, talking about Uno, because that's really what we want to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, so my story is, you know, I've been two decades in the industry. Um Interesting adventures, interesting journeys along the way. Uh, started on Wall Street, you know, had a good, interesting early career with the usual suspects, learned a lot, got into entrepreneurship early, got deeper into deep tech and, uh, you know, MLAI along with cyber and infrastructure. Those became my go-to things. And then essentially for the last 15 odd years, I've been deep in the world of startups. And as I like to tell people, which honestly is the case in Silicon Valley, uh, you've got to be lucky as much as doing some cool things. So I think I I certainly got lucky as well. A lot of things have been serendipitous for me. And I've been on some exciting journeys and, you know, worked with some incredibly smart people along the way, right? And so I ended up having, uh, you know, an interesting uh, career, if you may, or an interesting set of journeys uh, back at Elementum, you know, company that was trying to rethink old world of supply chain with craft search and, you know, other kinds of innovative ideas almost a decade back. I uh, was early on in a company called Nutanix, which was the hyperconvergence, you know, sort of flag bearer, uh, led the whole cloud infrastructure story at Medallia, which became a very successful customer experience company and went public. And then also had, uh, you know, my role, my part to play in a company called StackRox, which was among the first few companies that really started building uh, what has now become CWPP, Cloud Workload Protection Platform, right? And it's become a big category of its own in cybersecurity. Uh, back when we were doing StackRox, it wasn't a category at all. In fact, most of the time, customers and market analysts would struggle to see where do we exactly fit? Are we an IDS, IPS solution? You know, are we some sort of a detection response solution? And I think, you know, that was an interesting journey as well. And then fast forward from all these different learnings and, you know, different experiences, uh, got started with Uno last year. And uh, Uno is really a big ambitious play um, in the area of cyber where we are shifting the story really from detection and response to investigation. We feel the heavy lifting is in getting to the root cause and stitching the story together and trying to figure out what's the ultimate reason that's... uh, leading to all the breaches, hacks, and the weaknesses in the system. And then, uh, you know, leveraging expert systems, leveraging the intelligence that we have with all the cool AI stuff that we have been evolving as a as a sector and, you know, bringing that uh, to fruition, bringing that really to more usable level than just trying to find patterns that uh, are typically used in a detection and response story. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, th- that's part of the the podcast today we're going to be talking about the future later on but so I guess I really want to dive into Uno and um, we had a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago regarding why you started it the the pain points why you started it as well so it'd just be great to understand a little bit more about what's your the real problem you're trying to solve yeah absolutely I think there is essentially two different things independent of each other which uh, 
you know, at least for us came together and was the aha moment to start Uno. Um, it didn't really all happen in one go. You know, it was sort of iterative aha, if you may. You know, we learned, we learned some more and ultimately it felt like, yeah, this is something which must be built. You know, if we don't do it, somebody else should. And so therefore we we sort of doubled down and started doing it. Um, it's, it's just boils down to two very fundamental things in cyber today, right? So on one side, we've got the expanding threat surface. We just have, uh, you know, more ways that infrastructure applications, data can be attacked, can be breached, can be stolen. Uh, all of it is online. And, you know, the attackers are always two steps ahead of the defenders. So there is always that little tussle, the, you know, the cat and mouse game that's going on. And uh, there is a need for the ones that are defending to have smarter, you know, tools, you know, 10x, 100x better than what there are today in the market so that they can make sense of things and, you know, they can really up their game. So that's one part of the pain point that we kept on hearing from, you know, various companies, various various prospects, various buyers. Um, do bear in mind that there are no dearth of tools. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of cybersecurity tools. But I think one of the bigger problems these teams were struggling with was how to bring it all together. You know, many of these tools over-promised, under-delivered, or were very specific point solutions. And a lot of it was left really to the security teams to figure out how to bring them together, how to stitch it, what is appropriate in which situation, and how to, you know, really do that 10x, 100x that that they really need, right, to survive. It's not even a nice to have, it's necessary to have. So there was that one, you know, sort of a piece that was boiling uh, at some level, you know, something that most teams were struggling with. Um, some were realizing it actively and some were not, but, you know, certainly that seemed to be the undercurrent almost with every team that we spoke to, that, hey, we seem to be behind, we are not on top of things, you know, we, we're not able to really do what we would like to do. And then simultaneously in a very interesting, uh, you know, sort of juxtap juxtaposition there is that um, many of the teams are also struggling to stuff up and make sure that they had the absolute wonderful talent that they all would like to have, right? So we know this as an industry, you know this very well, Elliot, being in this segment yourself, that uh, the industry really is suffering from this, you know, acute talent uh, shortage. And part of it is the fact that there aren't so many people out there. There just aren't that many. So you can't find them, obviously. But also the fact that even the ones that are out there, they need to keep upping their game. There needs to be this element of continuous training, continuous learning, you know, continuously becoming your newer self. Uh, sort of the way that technologists and rest of the segments faced over the last few years, right? As we went through, you know, the evolution of internet and mobile and cloud and everything else that has occurred, I think engineers have to keep on upping their game. You couldn't be, you know, okay and up to date with skills that you had back in mid nineties or even early two thousands. You had to, you know, nonstop learn. And I think that that has started in cyber as well, where what you knew from your, you know, um, network centric, firewall centric security, or you know, rules based security, or data center centric security is all becoming. Uh, just a very small part of the puzzle. There's a much larger part of the puzzle that you need to learn, that you need to build your skills around. So anyway, to bring these two ideas together, one, just lack of tools that were really getting to the bottom of things. There were a lot of tools. And you know, in fact, there was a lot of dissonance to many of them on one side. And the other, the fact that, hey, we don't have so many smart people on board that can really help us uh, get to where we want to get to, right? So when we heard these two stories, the obvious, you know, sort of conclusion from our side, you know, from Uno and the founders at Uno, was that I think the right solution for this is to bring in technology, to bring in an expert system, to bring in, 
you know, the new advances we've made in the world of intelligence in AI and ML to come help us, right? And so that was really the genesis. Now, of course, uh, what I would like to nuance there is that, you know, although that came up very quickly in terms of that's the possible direction, it wasn't clear how we will go to that direction, you know, how we will actually, you know, go down that journey. And, and so then, you know, essentially it led to that second path of, okay, that seems like this directionally is right, but well, how do you get there, right? And, you know, what do we need to do? What is the new stuff that we need to build and bring to market? And what can we use from what already exists? And, you know, how to really approach this? Because remember, we have to solve both these problems, right? Not just one of them. We've got to make a tool that is 10x smarter, but also usable by everyone who's out there. We can't expect that, you know, everybody's a ninja out there and we have this ultra ninja weapon that, you know, people can just get their hands on and become super, you know, superheroes overnight. That's not going to happen, right? So you got to give something that has great user experience, easy usability, you know, something that can be inserted into the existing workflows. Um, so that's the genesis, you know, that's how Uno was born. Um, and we're very, very excited that, you know, we really started on this because um, there has been plenty of great feedback from early customers and prospects and everybody else who's hearing our story. And uh, lots of great confirmations. So I'm really glad that we got inspired and, you know, got down this path. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, it already sounds like an amazing journey and hats off to, to yourself and the team who's, who's gone out there and, and trying to take on a, a new problem and, and creating this, this company as well. So it's absolutely amazing. Now, um, I just want to kind of dive into a little bit more about Uno because it really, really fascinates me. I think it's an awesome, awesome business, especially in the future. So tell me a little bit more about your mission. Yeah, so our mission is very simple. You know, we want to make sure that the system does all the heavy lifting, that the expert system, the, you know, the uh, sort of the intelligent machine, if you may, becomes a very smart, you know, sort of a, a cyber architect or cyber analyst, uh, an incident response personnel, uh, you know, a security researcher. So all of those roles get morphed into this intelligent machine, if you may. Um that vision is also, I think, in line with where we are headed. You know, that's what the future looks like. Uh, you know, machines will get smarter and smarter. They already are quite smart at doing automation and doing things at scale. But they're also getting smarter every day in, you know, making decisions, in finding meaning, in getting to the bottom of things, in stitching stories, right? So these are things that AI is now able to do it. And I think there'll be more of that that would happen over the next multiple years. Um, the attackers will certainly latch onto it. You are going to see a bunch of these same hackers, same attackers, you know, the same malicious parties also use those tools to up their game, right? And so I think that at some level, this, uh, the, the cat and mouse game, if you may, that we were talking about is going to get up leveled and, you know, become a game of intelligent machines fighting intelligent machines at some level, right? And so, uh, so I think we want to be that smart, intelligent machine, Uno, you know, as a platform, uh, as a sort of, you know, investigation operating system, that enables defenders to really play the game at the level that they should play, right? And not always be at the catch-up mode, that they can really go on and, you know, unleash their own power and uh, take control of the situation. So, you know, that's really the vision. That's that's what we want to build here. Awesome. No, it sounds it sounds so exciting. And that kind of leads on to to the next part a little bit as well. The the team that you've got, we was talking about it again last time. It sounds like you've got an absolute rock star team. So just tell me a little bit about a little bit about more obviously the team that you've got and and who have you brought onto the mission so far? Yeah, 100%. Well, a startup is 
in the beginning, nothing but the team, right? You've got an interesting idea, but you got to execute to it. So, you know, you've got the right people with you on the journey. You will go places. If you don't, well, things will not happen. So, uh, so certainly, yeah, we built the team very deliberately. Uh, to start off with, I think I was very lucky over the last multiple years uh, through all the journeys that I was talking about to work with some incredibly smart engineers. And when I say incredibly smart engineers, you know, in the Silicon Valley context, it's not just about people who are talented. Certainly, they are incredibly talented, but they also have the fire in the belly, if you may, you know, to build new things, to go explore, right? They're, they're kind of like explorers in some sense, you know, the same analogous of climbers and explorers and, uh, you know, people who want to go find things, people who uh, want to go learn new things, people who want to go conquer new places, right, and uh, become a better selves on themselves. So I came across a lot of people like that over the last multiple years. And, you know, having been also in the driver's seat as somebody driving engineering, I was hiring a lot of those people too. And what I realized is that um, there is an interesting way that those people get attracted to certain journeys, and that the the secret sauce, if you may, or openly known secret sauce, you know, if I were to put it like that, because I think you play the game, this, you know, this game, you probably are aware of it, is the fact that people want to bind themselves with a mission that is worth, um, you know, worth working on uh, against a goal, against a vision that is uh, that is ambitious, that is exciting, that is game changing, right? Like those things really get the smartest of engineers, the same explorers, these incredible uh, people excited, right? So I think like that is something I had certainly learned. You know, it's less about the exact role or the salary or whether they'll make money out of it or not, whether they're going to get promoted out of it or not. Because those things they can, you know, their ability allows them to get to those levels. And in fact, what they really want is, can I become part of a journey where I can influence it, right? And can I really go to the moon, right? So they like that. Um, so, you know, having gone through those, I'd also come across a lot of people like that. And uh, one of them is really my co-founder, right? So he's a man who's an incredibly sharp engineer. You know, I like like to def, sort of define him as like he's a man who's very talented, but with very low ego, which makes for an excellent co-founder to start with, right? And so he's been on multiple of his own exciting journeys. You know, he built a bunch of core things back at Tipco, which was the flag bearer for a lot of message-driven, event-driven systems in Silicon Valley. We crossed paths back together at Elementum, and then he went on to become one of the core data engineers and data platform architects for a company called Plume, which was rethinking of Wi-Fi optimization, right? So he had been on his own journeys, working deeply in this space as well. And, you know, he was among the few engineers that I was chatting with uh, before we even got together, you know, incorporated and became a company company. And I was brainstorming with them, you know, like, hey, here's an idea, here's a big ambition, what do you think, right? And as I was saying, uh, for some of them, the mission just clicked. They're like, hey, this mission seems very exciting. I want to go to this one, right? And so that is how it happened with my co-founder, you know, and he became part of the journey. And then it became like two people from just me sitting on an idea and talking to some of them. And that's how we started about a year back. And then over the last year, we started then hiring. And our criteria was very simple. You know, our criteria was we obviously need A players and we need people who have the capability and we will go first with engineering centric hiring and then expand towards go to market and, you know, product and other things that you need to really build a formidable company. And when we started with engineering, I think we were looking more for, I mean, given that every engineer had great skill sets, which goes without saying, we were also looking for that fire in the belly. We were looking for people who would 
you know, really want to do new things, who would like to go and conquer new places, right? Go learn new things, take on a very challenging task. So we really start filtering down like that. And then last eight, 10 months that, you know, we have gone from two people to a 10 people company, uh, the quest has been that nonstop. We've never compromised on that. And what it ended up doing was that we ended up getting a lot of incredibly, you know, brilliant people applying to us and, you know, getting introduced to us through our own network, uh, who we started speaking to. And these included really people who were working on autonomous driving, you know, sort of technology, you know, people who were researchers in very well-known top 10 universities, even some professors who wanted to become part of this journey, uh, some engineers early in their career, but, you know, folks who wanted to go and really learn this and, you know, morph themselves into cyber and AI and ML kind of a space, which seemed very exciting and new and, you know, formidable at some level. Um, so we got a lot of attention, uh, from a lot of different sources. And I think like that was very helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Because then we became, even as a small unknown company and we were in a stealth mode back then, we started getting access to a lot of these very smart people who we could start conversation with. Um, and as we started building the team out, Elliot, I think the key part there was we couldn't hire everybody right up front uh, just because the stage of the company or, you know, also not only stage of the company, but also in terms of how we wanted to form the team because you have to form the team in a very deliberate manner. You can't certainly just, you know, bring on five, 10 people and then expect that they will somehow just figure out for themselves, <laughs> you know, and kind of make things, uh, you know, come together, right? So so we went about doing like that. And now we are very happy because we've got a very motivated team, a very talented bunch of engineers, many of them early in their career, but uh, coming with great experience, right? And great training. Uh, we mostly hire... Uh, folks who've had at least done some work in this space in the sense that either they're coming from MLAI or cyber or data engineering type background. And, you know, obviously, if you have stretched yourself a little bit, you know, like you've also done a little bit of grad school work or, you know, one of them, like I said, comes with a background in a uh, very different space, not in cyber, you know, has done a lot of this learning algorithms back in autonomous driving space, but certainly is a very motivated, you know, very smart person, has worked in a lot of technology that's very adjacent to what we do. Um, you know, those make great hires. And so uh, long story short, I think, you know, now we have a great initial team, uh, but this is just the early innings, right? This is like the first mile marker of a very long run. So we've got to build a lot more of this team out uh, we certainly need to hire a lot of go-to-market folks, you know, which we are very actively speaking with, you know, sales engineers, you know, go-to-market, you know, sales, initial salespeople and product and, uh, you know, a lot of these sort of uh, solution-centric folks as well, right, who can then work with customers and make sure they're successful. And then at the same time, uh, we are also looking to expand our engineering team, right? And um, the way we really hire is that we are opportunistic to an extent in the sense that we don't really put wrecks out and say, hey, we've got to somehow make sure this quarter we have to hire five people. I and mean, of course, there's some numbers and some budgets that we've got to be respectful of. Uh, but for the most part, if we find a great candidate tomorrow morning, we'll hire them. Right. So in fact, if anybody's listening to this and you feel you're an incredible engineer and, you know, want to be on this exciting journey, well, drop us a note. We'll talk to you for sure. And, you know, if it fits in, we'll we'll bring you on board. We we love smart people. We like explorers. We like ambitious people. Yeah, no, I I love it. And I'm sure there's there's gonna be people listening to this or see it maybe in the future that uh that maybe are rewatching this as well, that, that we're going to be very, very interested in in the journey that you're going on. It sounds so exciting. And I think that kind of leads us on to to the next part of 
Taking the business from zero to one million. I think I think we hear about all the time, especially I do, is taking the business from zero to 10 million. That's when the business starts getting a little bit more product market fit and everything along those lines. But nobody sometimes don't talk about the zero to one. So I really want to dive into that with you today. So maybe just just a summary of what that journey is like to start off, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, you're right. You know, I think there are there are a couple of things that I have learned over the years. Um, one that I want to sort of state up front, because I think one that is very misunderstood uh, by first time entrepreneurs is that the zero to one journey and the zero to one million ARR or, you know, whatever metric that you're looking at, you know, the first few customers, the first few sales, if you may, right? It's not formulaic, Right. As much as there are a lot of people out there in social media and, you know, even investors or past successful entrepreneurs putting out cheat sheets, if you may, like, you know, this is what you can do. And therefore you get to that one million. The reality is there isn't one. Right. And uh, why is there isn't one? Because there are multiple things that are against you. The odds are really against you when you're in that zero to one phase. Right. Think of it this way. Right. Like if you were a buyer and I'm just going to put that shoe on because it's easy to associate with it. Right. Um as an individual consumer, friend, you know, forget the B2B context. Like we live in the B2B world, we live in the enterprise sales world. So that has a slightly different way of thinking. But nonetheless, the analogy still remains true. If you are as a consumer going out there, right, and you wanted to buy a pair of shoes or a shirt that you like, and somebody said, well, you know what, I've got great shirt that you like, you know, here's what it looks like in the catalog. Uh, would you pay me money up front? I can't let you try that out right away because I don't have the shirt at the moment. And even the first one that you will try out may not have sleeves, right? It will, you'll have the pocket that you need, right? That's what's getting you excited or, you know, the particular cut that is getting you all, you know, hyped up and super thrilled about the shirt, but it may not have all the parts or the stitching may be a little loose, right? I got to come back and stitch it a little further, right? So you might have to come back for refitting or, you know, whatever else it might be, but I'll give you like kind of like a half-baked product, it's exciting. It's still the same product, but you know, I will, I will give you an early access to that. Now, in real life, I think most of the time, most consumers, barring very few, who are really already sold into that new fashion or you know, new idea, or thrilled about that new piece, would probably shy away from it. What they're going to say is that I love your concept. I would certainly buy it. Well, call me six months or one year from now when you have your product ready, right? When it's there in the shelves and you really figured out all the cuts and nuances and, you know, fine tuned it and now you can manufacture at scale, great. Just give me a shout, you know, and my money is with you, right? Like that's how most people would react to it. A parallel of that same analogy is in B2B as well. Why? Because most of these buyers have too many things going on, right? Uh, they've got their own teams to manage, their own priorities to manage. They've got limited budgets. Nobody's got infinite amounts of money to spend, right? And they've got goals to achieve. That's why they exist, right? So for example, in our world, in the cyber world, the CISOs want to accomplish a few things for that quarter or for that year, you know, or for their foreseeable future. Now, if your product, unless you bring in a product that helps them really up the game in some way, even if it's half-baked, but you know, at least starts laying the foundation for something they can achieve that they can't achieve today, right? Or something that really solves a very small part, but a very pertinent part of the pain point, your chances of really selling to them is very low. And the chances of selling to them is not low because people don't like you or don't like your product, but because they're not ready for it, right? And there is less of that that is talked about. So I think that from a classic zero to one journey, 
what I have learned is you've got to qualify your customers with brutal honesty. That is actually the first thing every entrepreneur should do. If you are one of those who walks out of every conversation feeling thrilled that, hey, these guys love our product and they're going to buy our product and, you know, here you go, you know, let me go and check off in my Excel sheet 200K, the sale that I have just, you know, almost confirmed. Let me look for the next 200K. I can tell you, you're already going to fail, right? And the reason why I say that from my own experiences is because, unfortunately, given just the odds are against you, you don't have a full-blown product, right? You don't have all the service levels that they're getting from other vendors. Even if your product is like 10x better, 100x better, 1000x better, you still don't have all those things in place, right? The hesitancy is going to be very high, irrespective of what you're bringing to the table. So I think like this is where you got to in some way, very weirdly, it might, it might sound kind of very odd, but you have to become your own sort of, you know, devil's advocate. You walk in into a meeting and you have to first think of what are the five reasons why this person wouldn't buy my product? Now, this may sound very odd. Why would you do that, right? You've gone to sell your product. Why are you going to go figure out? Because that the answers to those will help you determine and qualify the customer more clearly. You will very quickly, when you start looking at it from that lens, they're like, yeah, you know, they will buy it, but maybe two years out, maybe one and a half years out, right? Or whatever the case may be. Now, once you do start doing that very in a very brutally honest way, I think you will find your first five customers or the first three customers or the first 10 customers. What are that that is required to get to your first initial revenue, right? And obviously, you have to start small as well. You can't go and try and get 15 customers on day one, Um even if they're all willing to buy your product because, you know, there's a little bit of learning, hand-holding, you know, iteration around it. So that's one part of the puzzle, right? That less people talk about, you know, being brutally honest, being your own devil's advocate. But I think it's helpful, right? That's what I've learned. That's what we are doing at Uno as well, right? In fact, half the times when we go into these meetings, people are incredibly excited because the story is fascinating, right? Everyone wants to be on a fascinating story. So they're already sold. It's like, hey, I want this. I want this expert system. I love this story stitching stuff. I want it tomorrow morning. And then I become the devil's advocate sometimes and say, well, what happens if this falls apart? You know, and what happens if actually this doesn't work for you? Like, would you still want it? Right. And, uh, you know, although we have very fast onboarding and you don't have much effort to put right now, but, you know, you've got few things to do. You've already prioritized and you were spending before I showed up, you know, you already had this list. So what about that list? You know, who's going to work through that list? You know, so sometimes I question people back like that and interesting conversations come out of it. Right. And what are those interesting conversations? Sometimes we learn, hey, maybe we should go and build some of these into our product because, you know, these are important and we hear these across board from five different people. And many a times we just walk out saying, hey, incredible company. We certainly want these guys as customers, but not now. Yeah. They are not ready because sooner or later they won't be successful. Right. Even if they get excited and write us the initial check, it'll be very difficult to renew. It will be very difficult to go back three months, six months, eight months out and get feedback and say, hey, how's it going? Because I can tell you already right now, it, nothing is going to move. It might become even shelfware for all you know, right? And so I think like that brutal honesty is required, right? And then you will find your first three, first five. The second part of the puzzle really here is that I think as an entrepreneur, and this is something you learn having gone through again, multiple startup journeys, you should not be shy in tapping into your network, because why? At the end of the day, people buy your product for who you are and less for what your product does. And the reason being, they don't know your product. What they know is you, right? So you are the product effectively. 
right? So, and that's true about anything, right? This is very true about professional services or consulting because, you know, obviously you are literally your product, right? Because you are the one who's going to do the work and provide advisory. But yeah. even in terms of a normal business, a product business, initially until the product is proven and, you know, hardened and, you know, already is deployed in multiple places and well-known, which is not the case when you're early on. That definitely is never the case with any company whatsoever, right? In your zero to one, the founding team, the founder, the the vision, that is the product really, right? And so who is going to buy into your product? Those who either know you, those who have either worked with you, those who already respect your talent and your experience and, you know, want that on board on their journeys, or those who think and trust you for whatever reason. Right. And so I think like large part of that comes from your own network. And we've been lucky a little bit on that, you know, and I think we are not the only folks, you know, if you've been on a few different startup journeys and you built a few companies, you built some credibility. So certainly you get more, uh, you know, interest from people and there is a certain bias, if you may, that works in your favor. You know, let's be sort of honest and upfront about it. You know, if you're a first time entrepreneur, it gets a little trickier because then you have to establish that as well. Right. But I would say even in that case, even if you're a first time entrepreneur, it's important for people to like latch on to their network as much as they can, right? Like uh, really double down on it because that's your superpower in the beginning. And, yeah. you know, go through your network, you know, one one distance away, two distances away, three distances away, whatever it is, right? So ask your investors to introduce you to potential customers. Ask your friends, you know, old colleagues to, you know, sort of introduce you to potential customers and you know, so on and so forth, right? Kind of build from there. And I think that you'll see more success. Right. So once you do both of these things, right, like tap into your network and be brutally honest with every meeting that you get, you will find your first three, first five. Right. But it's going to be a hustle and it's going to be, I think, an emotional roller coaster. You know, this is another part that I think most people don't think about and talk about in the sense that it's neither always happy and exciting and, you know, like the buoyant kind of a state, nor is it always depressing either. And why so? Because, again, you know, from the conversations you'll have, you'll find people who get excited about your mission, right? Who would look at what you're building and say, hey, this is exciting. I love it. When can I get my hands on it, right? And so that's very powerful feedback loop for an entrepreneur. You walk out of a meeting like that feeling very thrilled because it's confirming what you're doing. It's almost confirming your existence to an extent, right? You walk out feeling like, oh, great, you know, this is why we exist. And then you walk out of another meeting that you felt, you know, super excited about early but you know they don't have the budget so they're not ready or there have been some organizational changes or whatever it's like sorry guys you know we love you guys but not now or it could be even worse where they challenge i don't think so because people are skeptical from their prior experiences and we see that sometimes and we get into educational modes as well where they might walk in and say well i don't think this technology is going to work and they don't even know about the technology but you know the prior experiences haven't been positive right so they were Always, they start with from being very skeptical. So this every entrepreneur would face, right? And so that's an emotional roller coaster. You know, one exciting meeting in the morning, you walk into the next one is like, you feel like, why do I exist? Why do I even have my company? And the third one you meet and you feel, oh yeah, exactly, we'll go change the world. And by afternoon again, you've got somebody like, sorry, we won't give you the check, right? So you've got gone through already four emotions in a single day. So I think that it's very important to control that as well, right? So if you control your emotions, tap into your network, and become brutally honest, and you think you'll find your initial customers. That's honestly what the zero to one journey is, or the zero to one million, you know, that that you try to get to. Yeah, no, it's um, it's amazing. I like the way you you broke it up there. It's uh, it's pretty funny because the last uh, guest on the podcast was a gentleman from YL Ventures, a a cybersecurity investment uh, VC firm, and he was we was talking about the journey as an entrepreneur is very very early from seed stage, obviously from inception and. 
the emotional roller coaster you you must be going on and anybody who starts a company as well again just hats off completely because it's a, it's a crazy crazy journey to go on but like uh, like you said there earlier about changing the world that's that's the mission i i completely love it as well <laughs> absolutely i think that's that's something also just to chime in there a little bit the the emotional aspects right or the unknown aspects is a very key part of being an entrepreneur and i feel that it's probably not even just entrepreneur i mean i think we've all you know, uh, made the whole concept of entrepreneurship very romantic. So I think currently, like if you're a startup founder or entrepreneur or working on something new, it's looked upon very favorably by the world. So that's a good thing, you know, but I think in general, anybody on a mission, anybody trying to do anything meaningful, this is probably the most, the toughest part that is less talked about, that it is a lot about this emotional roller coaster that we just discussed. It's a lot more about the long game versus the short, you know, like, hey, here's my mission that I'll achieve over the next year, two years, three years. And you've got to do a few things in line with that versus how do I survive the day to day or what do I need to achieve for like next week? Right. So I think like these two things are non-trivial. They're actually very hard. And, you know, the sooner you consciously start taking control of that, I think you have more fun, honestly. You know, success obviously also comes with it, but I think you start having more fun because then you start seeing patterns. In fact, in some sense, you start preempting it, you know, yeah. which is kind of funny. You start preempting. It's like, oh, yeah, you know what? This is really great, but probably the afternoon won't feel like this, right? <laughs> so you kind of start <laughs> sort of second guessing yourself. So and that's cool. That makes things more fun in a weird way, right? Yeah, no, for sure. No, for sure. I was, gonna, I was just going to ask about how do you, how, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs going through that emotional state or even kind of not the bit the individuals who have not necessarily set a business up yet but are thinking about it and um, what would you what advice would you give to them about that emotional roller coaster yeah i think it starts with awareness like first make sure that you're aware of it right because sometimes i think we um the the whole concept of starting anything especially starting a company is coming together of a lot of energy right it's all about getting excited it's all about buoyancy it's about going changing the world right as we were saying so you're already in that excited state and uh, the problem is when you are in overexcited state you detach a little bit from reality which sometimes is helpful i mean it's a good thing right because when you are in that excited state you might end up doing things that otherwise you might hold back right from a from a good standpoint right like stretching yourself and you know exploring things but at the same time i think the awareness aspect also sort of gets shadowed in that state of mind so I think that a lot of founders don't realize that, well, this is not going to last forever, right? And then things will, you will hit that reality very soon. And, you know, there's going to be one great day and one uh, not such a good day. So I think if you start becoming aware of it, that itself is the first victory, because then you start sort of getting ready for it mentally, you know, emotionally, all, all those ways, right? Uh, secondly, I think that uh, for any entrepreneur, apart from awareness, I think they needs to have a plan, right? Like, how are you going to deal with it? And I think everyone has a different way of dealing with it. And I've really seen different people deal with it differently. And even I have personally started dealing with it differently over a period of time. You know, 10 years, 15 years back when I was in this state, I would just resort to a lot of physical activity, you know, and I enjoyed sports. So I would just go run on a day that I had, you know, a terrible day or a tough day, I would go and just play more sports. Somehow I felt like that would solve my problem. And it did, right? Because it just took my mind away and I was doing a lot of physical activity. Um, and many people do like that. You know, many others also do that. They do exercise additional or follow a particular, you know, meditation routine or something that works for them. Each one has their own way of dealing with it. Uh, but that's a good thing. What I'm saying is find what, you know, what helps you control, what helps you 
you know, sort of keep you stable and focused and, you know, do it, right? Whatever that is, each one has their own. Uh, but over a period of time, I think that uh, a bigger factor that I've seen that plays in is having a plan. And what I mean by having a plan is like deliberately set aside some time for reflection. So maybe every three days or Friday or whatever, you know, everyone can have their own routine. Uh, sit back and literally document. You know, I have reams of paper where I write all the time, right? And in fact, uh, people who know me sometimes make fun of it because I have so many of these notes, which are like, what are you going to do with all these notes, right? Like I have all these scribbled notes with pen and paper. But what it really helps to do is when you start writing down how your week was or, you know, what was the part why you were worried or, you know, this one needs to be followed up, but this really didn't come through. I think you consciously start thinking about those issues. And when you consciously start thinking about issues, you also start getting a little more rational about it. I feel like that's where your mental state moves from emotional to a rational, logical state. And as an entrepreneur, you really need that. That has to be your friend, right? So like when you start reasoning through it more logically, it doesn't feel that bad after all, right? So again, going back to that specific case, you work out of the meeting, you expected to get your 200K check, but instead all you were told was like, sorry, we don't buy your product. And now you're trying to scramble and figure out where is my 200K that I've already put on my slides to my investors and everybody else that I already closed the loop. How am I going to do that, right? So you're all tensed. Uh, your emotional state is poor and you're generally feeling depressed at the end of it. It's like, hey, I've got a new problem in hand as if I don't have enough already, right? So you're already kind of working through it. But when you break that down into a rational state, now you start looking at it differently, saying, yeah, you know, I should have anyway, maybe I put overweightage out here in terms of chances of closing this deal. I was just overly optimistic. And so next deal that is in the pipeline for next week, let me go back and assess that. Am I also putting too much weight there or you know, am I being too conservative? So that mindset change happens when you start looking at data in a more rational way, right? And in my my opinion, you know, from my experience, it usually happens in reflection and less when it's unfolding. When things are unfolding, I think each one of us are humans. I guess that's part of becoming, you know, uh, an entrepreneur that, uh, you know, you have to go through that emotional roller coaster a little bit. But once you start getting a little bit, you know, more rational and reflective about it, then you have a plan. And then, you know, you start your playing with your plan and then it becomes less and less emotional, becomes more and more logical. Rather fewer things impact you, let's put it that way, right? So out of the 100 things that would impact you, you know, maybe there are 10 things that still irk you or get you excited, but at least the other things are business as usual. It's like, yeah, we got to do this. Let's keep moving, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's that's pretty much the game there. Uh, last but not the least, I do want to mention here for early entrepreneurs who are starting out, don't hesitate to try um, remember that in most entrepreneurship journeys, and this is something that I have made a lot of mistake in the past, for sure, is you are your biggest enemy. And what I mean by that is most of the time you'll hold back or you'll feel like, oh, this is what I was told or this is what the person that I look up to does. And so you won't try something else that you might even intuitively feel like you should. Right. For example, where to go find your customers, you know, how to raise funding, who to talk to, who should I hire? There are, again, like I said, formulaic things that have become too commonly known. And most people get sucked into those formulas, trying to just stick to those formulas, unfortunately. But I think the reality is that, sure, you know, go use those formulas. They work for you. Fantastic. But if they're not working for you, you should go and explore. You should immediately go and question this and say, well, maybe I need to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. Right? Like try something else out because this isn't working. It's not really moving where I would like it to move. So 
So that is important. That has to be done very actively, I think. You know, you do that, you're planning, and you, know, you kind of control your emotional state, are aware of it. Um, it's it's good. You, have, you just still feel it, but, you know, it's fun. It's like a roller coaster, literally like a roller coaster. You know, you know you're going to come down. It won't be fun, but, uh, well, you got on it for a reason, didn't you? So. No, I, I love that part there about just going going to give it a go because I think I feel like a lot of a lot of people do get trapped in their own ways and then think at one at one point it's too late to start a business or, or start this entrepreneurial journey. So I think it is really important, especially in this day and age where, like you said earlier, it's more accepted now and, and really kind of uh, a flourish to go out and, and try something new and, and and go on the entrepreneurial journey. So no, I I really, really like that. I really like that a lot. So um, awesome stuff. So I guess now just kind of switching it up a little bit because um, I want to talk about the future with you um, because obviously your 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 solution right now and what you're doing in the market is obviously more futuristic. We've, we've been only 10 people right now, but tell me a little bit more about where you see the market heading. Yeah, the market is in a very interesting state at the moment. And uh, what I mean by that is I think a few different factors, different forces are coming together. And it's obviously creating opportunities, but also making things a bit unpredictable, right? And so what do I mean by that? I mean, pass through that a little bit. So we've come from a world of, you know, uh, firewalled, gated data centers, and cloud has now become the modern data center, if you may, right? And also in that same process, we have moved from, uh, you know, applications that were maybe shipped twice or thrice a year where, you know, black boxes, that's how it was, right? 15, 20 years back to very dynamic applications, right? That are shipped multiple times a day, perhaps multiple times an hour, right? They are microservices type of applications. In fact, things that exist that half of it you write, half of it you use from open source, uh, sometimes, you know, half of it you write and half of them are provided by external services, by APIs or, you know, whatever the setup may be. So I just feel like I think the entropy is increasing. You know, you can almost think of it as gated community, bounded set, moving towards a more open world with a lot more entropy, right? So uh, so it's not one type, right? And so that's causing by itself, at least in the world of cyber and in the world of, you know, infrastructure, a lot of changes in the way we protect, in the way we think about security, in the way we, uh, you know, look at metrics, in the way we look at uh, where the threats are, right? So that itself is evolving. And I think that that will evolve a lot more, right? For example, one evolution I can see is as we start building more and more smarter systems, it probably wouldn't make sense to go and do the same kind of attacks that we do today. Uh, you know, I think it will probably, and this is sort of a weird malicious viewpoint, if you may, if you start thinking from their mindset, but you would probably want to affect the the brain, right? The intelligent machine's intelligence so that you can control it. You know, the classic sci-fi dream of the Skynet, if you may, right? And I think that that would probably become a reality, right? I mean, think of it this way. If you want to hack an autonomous car, I mean, the best thing to do is control that systems that's driving the car, and then you can make it do whatever you want it to do. Right. And there are a lot of these kinds of things that are already being conceived and being tried, right, from smart systems and the system's core being, you know, taken control of and, you know, attacked. So that's one part of it, right? And there are various names for it also, you know, adversarial machine learning, you know, poisoning the whole sort of knowledge set, you know, so on and so forth. This is being talked about, but I think like that will become more real. And so when you combine these, and these I'm just mentioning as a few small pieces, I think like the attack vectors, the kinds of attacks, the sophistication of attacks, they're all going to become bigger and bigger, right? 
Now, combine this with the fact that I think as a society, we are becoming more and more digital every day, right? And in fact, think of it this way. In the past, even five, 10 years back, you know, people would advertise and say, well, I also have a mobile app. Or yes, you can also do this online. Businesses would say that, right? Now that story has flipped. In fact, if you really want to do it in the physical world, oftentimes you can't do it. There are many banks where the primary way to interact is the online banking. You know, many of them don't even have branches anymore, or, you know, or they share ATMs. And the ATMs can do far fewer things than what your online interface can do, right? So the story has been flipped. And just as an example, I think like a lot of those things from government services to, you know, our day-to-day businesses, everything is becoming digital. Now, what does this digital revolution really mean? Well, everything is online, right? So protection of data, management of data, right? Management of your identity, protection of, you know, all those things that are worth something that can be stolen is all online, right? The whole offline aspect of security is becoming lesser and lesser, but I think the online aspect is where there'll be a lot more acceleration, right? And so like, just to give an example, it wouldn't make sense after a while from an ROI standpoint to go physically rob a bank. It's just not worth it, right? For the adversary, because you'll get caught, you'll get killed and you will get what, 100K in your pocket, right? But you could go hack a much larger amount. I'm not saying I'm not trying to encourage anyone whosoever to go and do this digital theft. But my point is that that's where the world is headed, right? And so I think that we will certainly see a different world in 2030 and 2040 and 2050, where a lot of our daily existence, right, is under threat, so to speak, because it is digitally wired up. It's managed and run by these smart machines one way or the other, or they influence it and you know they could be controlled, right? So... Although very sci-fi sounding at the moment, I think that's the reality we're heading towards, right? So now the question becomes, well, how do you protect yourself in that world? Because you can't create gates and moats. That's not going to work. You can't create this, you know, oh, I'm going to just keep this all offline and somehow put it in cold storage and life will be good. You can't do that either, right? Because all life would exist digital and online, right? All your identity, all your critical data, everything valuable is there. Um, so how do you protect it, right? And so I think like that's where the game becomes really at a very different level, where you're saying, I need to be at least as smart or smarter than the adversary or a potential adversary, right? Where the data itself is aware and in some sense can help protect itself, where intelligent machines can themselves learn and you know adapt themselves as these adversarial machines also kind of fight against them, right? That um, there is a level of intelligence there's a level of uh, getting to the root cause and understanding the story, not just looking at data as a mere data point and you're looking at standard rules. So those machines are not humans behind those machines can make decisions, right? Because you'll have to make decisions. Do I need to thwart it? Do I need to let it go? Is this malicious? You know, those determinations need to happen at the machine level, right? So I think that's the world we are headed towards. You know, a lot more intelligent systems would be built on both sides and, um yeah, it would be an exciting, exciting, brave new world, I think, that we are going the direction of. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And it's crazy sometimes to even talk about stuff like that with, um, with I mean, like Elon Musk talks about stuff like that as well. But I think it's about people do need to start talking about it a lot more. I think the the awareness of what actually could happen in the future is something that does need to be spoken about a lot more. And especially within the security realm where even, I mean, even 
thinking about my mother, she has no idea what security to to put on because she's got no awareness of anything. That's just taking it right back to the to simplest form. But it's just still that nobody really knows what to do. So the awareness in, in the industry really needs to be pushed out there a lot more as well, especially with now everybody segmented and working from home and things like that as well. So no, it's a really interesting topic. And I guess um I guess Uno, just going back to you guys then, how how will you guys shape the future in terms of your kind of vision, what we were talking about earlier and, and the stuff you were talking about there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the things that became clearer when we were defining our own vision was like, who do we want to be, right? Like, are we a tool? Are we a platform? And, you know, while we have some of those characteristics, um, I think what we converged on is like, if we achieve our goal, we are essentially a smart security analyst or a smart incident response personnel, like Uno as a concept, rather than a tool for one, right? And so when you start thinking like that, I think our vision really is to be that machine, right? So that thinking machine, if you may, right? The machine that can stitch stories, the machine that can make sense of things. And I'm using the word machine very loosely. I mean, you know, machine in the correct sense is, is really a intelligent piece of software right like some something that is driven by data and driven by algorithms right like it's the it's the ml or the ai engine if you may but the manifestation of that is really the same that you would expect a super smart human being to be able to do today so you know an ultra smart security architect or an ultra smart security researcher today is able to thread the needle is able to put the pieces together and figure out hey this is what may have happened you know this is how it may have started this is how it probably kind of you know panned out we want Uno to be that, right? So not not a tool for a smart analyst, but exactly that person, the smartest of those people around today, you know, so that the machine itself can reason, stitch story, make sense of it, you know, thwart it, recommend, you know, whatever that is the right sort of course of action from there. Um, if you're able to achieve that goal, you know, we are on that mission, we're already on that journey and, you know, early signs are encouraging and exciting, but, you know, it's a long journey, right? We'll see when we... We're still at the first base camp. We've got plenty to climb, right? But when, if and when we reach the summit, I think there would be a very exciting moment because then we would have realized some of these things that I just spoke about, right? The smart machine that can think like the adversarial machine, the smart machine that, you know, you can really rely on to make the right decisions, to uh, dynamically adapt, to um, make sure that it adjusts its posture and adjusts its strategies based on, you know, what threats or, uh, you know, what kind of circumstances and situations exist at that given point in time. Um, that's who we want to be. That's what that's what Uno wants to be. No, I'm, I'm bought into the vision and for sure I'll be watching from the sidelines over the next few years, Shashank. It's, uh, it's a really, really exciting journey that you've got yourself on for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We are we are thrilled to be on this journey. And, uh, you know, as I tell everybody and same to you as well, Elliot, you know, it takes a whole village to build a successful startup and we'll need all the help. And we'll certainly need help from people like you and the community and, you know, all kinds of supporters. Um, you know, without that, the, the, the vision and the mission won't be achieved, right? We won't reach that summit that we're aspiring to go, you know, right up top. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So um, I guess I'm I'm going to just ask you one more question before we close it off today. Now, I ask this to every single person who comes on the podcast, well, more or less every single one, but what advice would you give to yourself right at the start of your career if you could? Um, yeah, my one advice or rather more of a reflection, if you may, right, that <laughs> comes out of years of existence is that uh, I should have certainly taken more chances than I did. 
you know, I've I've had a great career. I'm very thankful for it. And I'm also very thankful to all the people who influenced me positively and given me the opportunity and helped me shape and become who I've become today for better or for worse. Uh, but I think that I was a little more conservative early on in my career. I don't think I took as many chances the first few years. I was certainly learning a lot, right? I was working with a lot of smart people and that helped me. But I didn't jump in into entrepreneurship as much sooner at some level, right? I also started my career in larger companies. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I just feel like if my if I was anyway headed there, I should have probably started sooner, right? Um, was a little bit more uh, conservative in taking risks. And that's the odd part now as I age and, you know, as I look back, I feel like the risks are much higher and more amplified as you age and as you have, you know, financial responsibilities and family and other things in place. But when you're young, like you, you really have very little to lose. Uh, but funny enough, that's where most uh, people, because they've just started their career and, you know, they've just started figuring out what to do are most risk averse. So, you know, that's the dichotomy that most people live in. And I think I lived through that as well, right? I didn't take as many um, brave, bold moves um, as, you know, I tend to take now, right? For example, even starting this, you know, company right now, Uno with this big thesis and, uh, you know, kind of doubling down on it and investing my own time, energy, money, uh, I would have probably shied away from it, you know, 20 years back. And uh, I think that I shouldn't have, you know, I should have probably taken more risks early on and, uh, probably the outcome may be slightly different, uh, but it's all in hindsight, right? I mean, all all brilliance is twenty twenty. So you know, uh. it is it is indeed. And there's a well, it's it's already well. I mean, you've had an amazing career, and it's got to you to the point exactly where you are today. So yeah, maybe hindsight is a is a nice thing sometimes, but uh, you you never know what has happened, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. But yeah, and I would encourage everyone. You know, not only for me, if I were to extend as just sort of my last uh, little bit here is that for young people out there, right, who are starting your careers, I mean, don't hold yourself back. This is the time to learn, accelerate your learning, take chances, try out things that you think you might succeed in or want to try out. Um, do the stuff. I mean, what worse can happen? You might waste three years of your life, four years of your life, and you have to go back to a good, nice corporate sector job. You know, it's, I think at all points in time, worth it. And that's the worst case, right? So, a lot of brilliant things that will come out of it. It's unlikely you'll hit the worst case, but, you know, go for it. You know, that's that's what I would recommend everyone today. No, that's, uh, that's fantastic. And that, uh, that was the thought process when I when I started HubScale as well. The exact same. <laughs> but it's uh, it's awesome stuff. And Shashank, honestly, there's been some absolutely amazing things that we've gone through today. And I've even taken a lot away from it as well. I think that it's a very inspiring thing that you've done, even just setting up a company and, and driving towards a mission that you've really got as well. So Noah, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I'm, I'm sure everybody listening really enjoyed as well. Well, thank you so much. I had a good time chatting with you. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Maybe we'll do one in a, in a year's time or something to recap on, on the, on the journey as well. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That'll be a reflection moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it a lot. Well, uh, well, no, again, thank you for coming on and uh, yeah, we'll speak to you soon.